Welcome to Ream Library. My name is Tom Lanny. I'm the director of the McFarland Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture. And I have the great pleasure this afternoon of being able to welcome a friend to Holy Cross, uh, Carsonia Wise Whitehead, or Kay, as she's known to her friends. My first real memory of Kay is in the airport at Bilbao, Spain, where we were waiting in line. Uh, we were on the Ignatian pilgrimage with some faculty who were here, and we were in line because her bags got lost, and Kay was busy, A, mourning that she was missing her two sons a great deal, and she was going to be away from them for the longest she'd ever be away from them, and B, of course, that she had no luggage and was 10 days in Europe with a group of people who were, were there. Uh, it was a trial by fire for her, but one that she, she passed with, with great grace. We did eventually get her luggage back, but more importantly, we learned as a group really um, how much we loved being with Kay. And we learned very quickly, it became apparent to us, A, that Kay was a force of nature, and B, that she was a really a very, very gifted force of nature and uh, someone we enjoyed being with. In the irony department, I can't tell you how many times I heard Professor Amy Wolfson say to me, wouldn't it be great if we could get Kay to come to Holy Cross from Loyola in Maryland where she was? If you've ever heard the Woody Allen phrase, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans, Kay is still at Loyola, Maryland, and Amy Wolfson left Holy Cross <laughs> to go to Loyola, Maryland, is now the academic vice president there. So a little irony. Uh, I know that uh, pretty soon I'm confident that Amy will have the pleasure of being able to promote Kay from assistant to associate uh, professor when that process is all done. Um, Kay Whitehead is assistant professor for communication and Africana and African uh, American studies at Loyola University, Maryland, and founding executive director of the Emily Francis Davis Center for Education, Research, and Culture. Kay was a documentary filmmaker before she went into academe and was a three-time Emmy nominee for those documentaries. She's a poet. She's a very talented teacher who's been recognized for that. She's a historian who works in the black documentary tradition, focusing on studying the different ways that people document their stories through diaries, letters, editorials, and oral interviews. Her research and publications address the complex interrelationships between enslaved and freeborn 19th century women, black women, and they investigate the ways in which race, class, and gender coalesce in the American classroom, political environments, and social arenas. Her 2013 Carter G. Woodson lecture, Sparking the Genius, and a book, Notes from a Colored Girl, The Civil War Pocket Diaries of Emily Francis Davis, were both published in 2014. In January, she published Letters to My Black Sons, Raising Boys in a Post-Racial America, a compilation of letters and poems written to her two sons, Kofi and Amir. Over 14 years, she's documented everything from their first steps to their first encounter with racism, from their questions about race to their questions about falling in love. Kay seems to be a regular at the White House. She's presented at the White House's Black History Month panel for the last three years and was a featured speaker at the 2014 Youth Mentoring Summit on the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. In 2014, she was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Progressive National Baptist Convention. So you can see there are lots of good reasons for having invited Kay to be with us at Holy Cross. Her talk today is called, From the Civil War to Ferguson, the Role of the Black Church as a Training Ground for Activism. She's going to explore the role of the black church in the context of American history, 
the recent events in Ferguson and New York, and the African-American experience. So please join me in welcoming Jay Whitehead. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure for me to go places and have my friends introduce me. So thank you so much for that, Tom. It is a pleasure to be with you. I have a lot I want to talk about because this is a really big and important topic. When we talk about the role of the black church in terms of a place of activism, it should make you think about something. You should think about the Black Lives Matter movement because that's happening now. You should think about the Civil Rights Movement, because that happened before. You may even think about the Civil War, because the black church played an active role during all those times. I think the best way to get started, I want to begin with the video, because when I talk about the phrase black rage, when I talk about black anger, when I talk about black frustration, I want to make sure we're using the same terms. And to do that, I want to start with a piece that Lauren Hill did, that we then cut images around that talk about black rage. We'll start with that, please. Black rage is founded on two-thirds a person Rapings and beatings and suffering and worsens Black human packages tied up in strings Black rage can come from all these kinds of things Where were you when Ferguson happened? It was an amazing experience for those of us who know the history Who've studied the history and in some ways never thought we'd live out that history I remember when Ferguson exploded and the pictures started coming across my phone lines and people started saying, Dr. Whitehead, what are you going to do about this? Are you on your way to Ferguson? What are the next steps for this movement? Because I talk about being an activist and ways in which my scholarship and my activism come together. And I realized when I told the young people in front of me, this is actually not my struggle. The struggle that is in front of us belongs to the young people of today. It's college students who are leading this struggle. It's high school students who are leading this struggle, not people like me. I'll tell you why I knew that. They called me and said, Dr. Whitehead, come on out with us. We're going to die in today, and we want you to die in with us. I said, absolutely, I will be there. What time? They said, 1 o'clock. I'm like, ooh, I have office hours. I can't make it at 1 o'clock. I said, when's the next movement? I'll come out there with you. 7 o'clock that night, we're shutting down the highway, Dr. Whitehead. Come out and shut down the highway with us. I said, what time? I will be there. 7 o'clock. Ooh, my son has SAT prep. I said, okay, every step of the way, I'm reminded that those of us who are more invested in the system, those of us who have to pay mortgage and have to go to work, we have to find ways to bend our privilege to help young people to do what they have to do. 20 years from now, you will not remember your chemistry exam. You won't remember the physics exam or the paper you wrote, but you will remember if there was a movement in this country and it passed you by. You will remember not using your voice and using your pen to raise your hands and do something about it. You will remember that. Because there are people that from my father's generation, they remember. And they talk about the civil rights movement and they remember how they were too busy to go, how they missed the bus, how they slept in, how they didn't think it was important. And now 20 years later, they regret not being there when change happened. The black church has been a role in terms of activism. In 1853, Unitarian minister and abolitionist Theodore Park of Massachusetts, he said that he did not understand the arc of the moral universe. He could not calculate the curve nor complete the figure by experience of sight. He said the arc was long, but that it bends towards 
justice. Some of you may recognize that. You may be familiar with that because 112 years later, Dr. King said it in Selma. When they were asking Dr. King, tell us, tell us, when is change going to come? What's going to happen? When will the crooked be made straight? Tell us, Dr. King, how much longer do we have to wait? He said, you will not have to wait long because everything that's made wrong will be made right. The crooked will be made straight and everything that's up high will be laid low. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I'm arguing that justice has taken a long time to get here. How much longer do we have to wait for justice? When I look at it, what's happening, not just in Ferguson or New York or in Florida or in Baltimore or in Ohio or in Virginia, I am concerned that we have gotten confused about what justice means. When I think about this difficult and painful season, I lift up the names of the people that have gone on. Michael Brown, Eric Garner, John Crawford, Jordan Davis, Trayvon Martin, Ezel Forward, and the one that affected me the most was Tamir Rice. If you are not familiar, Tamir Rice was 12 years old. He was playing in the gazebo with a toy gun in an open carry state in Ohio. The police officer said he drove up, he saw a 20-year-old man. He asked the man three times to put the gun down. The man refused to comply, and then he shot him out of fear for his life. We believed the police officer until we saw the video. And in the video, the police officer drove up, and in 1.6 seconds, he drove up, stopped his car, pulled out his gun, and shot a 12-year-old boy. That's the one that affected me the most. Because if a 12-year-old boy looks 20, and a 12-year-old boy is frightening to you, then we've come to a place where justice is not happening. This idea of the Black Lives Matter movement has erupted across the country. And it's a racially diverse movement. Just like the civil rights movement, there are people of all different ethnicities, all different genders, all different races and religions who are standing up and saying, we need to have a change. It's speaking to bigger issues. It's about the ongoing treatment of the criminalization of the black male body. Why are we fearful of the black male body? Why are we concerned about the movement of the black male body? Why does it lead to what we saw on this screen? The first time I saw this video, it did make me weep. Because I looked at these images and compared them to images from the civil rights movement. I thought about 1963 and the Birmingham campaign when they were putting dogs on children in water hoses. I remember that when I saw this. I never thought I would see that again. When my father talks about the civil rights movement, because I'm part of the sandwich generation, I have my dad from the civil rights movement and I have my 14-year-old son who's now sitting in for Ferguson. So I'm in the middle. And my dad is now giving my son tips on how to be an activist. What do you do when you get arrested? What are you willing to stand up for? I did not think for a 14-year-old in 2015, he would have to have tips on what to do if you're arrested at a movement. What do you do if you're marching and the cops come? What do you do if it gets too cold? What do you do when you're dying in and your feet start to freeze? These are tips from my father to my 14-year-old. The Black Lives Matter movement is at a very interesting place. And now we're looking at the role of how the black church can be more actively involved. If you remember, and you think about it, the black church has been a training ground for activists from 1661 up until now. Even during the time of American enslavement, they would meet 
sometimes with the white minister on the plantation grounds. Then they run out to the woods and they meet in silence and they would pray. They would pray silently to themselves and to their God. They would hold hands and they would cry and they would think about that day when freedom would come. The black church wasn't a place. It was a feeling. It was a moment. It was an experience that they shared that we believe in something bigger than ourselves. The God that we believe in will save us from this, even in spite of all the challenges. To think about the fact that you were enslaved from the cradle to the grave, you still believe that something better was coming. The black church was also used during Reconstruction. When they were trying to figure out how to help the newly, freely, formerly enslaved people, they went into the black church and said, let's take all the goods and all the money into the black church and meet them there because they're going to go to church because they were in church around the clock doing prayer vigils. Because if you think about what was happening at the end of the Civil War, you had the rise of the KKK. So even though you were free, in terms of your body being free, you did not have any rights. If you have no money, you have no clothes, you have no shoes, you have no property, then in this country you are not free because you're unable to move around. At the same time they were talking about freedom, the KKK begins to grow. And so now your lives are in danger just because you want to walk and be free in this country. The scariest time when you look at the writings from that time period were black men talking about going to vote. And the excitement they had about voting and the fear that came along with that. Am I prepared to lose my life to stand up and vote, to stand up and count, to stand up and make my voice matter? It was during that time where the black church stepped in once again. Because they would meet at the black church in the morning, they would pray and figure out a game plan. We're going to go in waves. We won't go together so we don't all get arrested, but you go at 4, and I'll go at 4.05, and you go at 4.10, and then he'll go at 4.15. So every five minutes we're showing up just looking to exercise our right to vote, the right to vote that we have coming out of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The black church once again stepped in at the turn of the century. When they were thinking about where do we go from here, the big idea in 1900 was talking about literacy rates. How can we get more black people into college? You saw the rise of historically black colleges. You saw the starting of black fraternities and sororities starting in 1906. How do we get more black people to graduate from college and then take on the role of being that next generation? Because in order for us to move forward, we have to be educated. That was the struggle. That was the understanding. I think that's a simple concept. That if you want to do something different in this country, you need to be educated to do it. It is an enormous and marvelous privilege to be able to sit in this library and be away from your family for four years and pursue education. Like it's an amazing experience. And the idea that people don't understand what it means to go to college, that people died so that black people could go to college in this country, it's an amazing privilege. I talk to young people about college and say, you have to understand, college is a training ground, getting you ready to do something different, getting you ready to make a change, getting you ready to be the ones we have been waiting for. And young people don't hear me. I'm getting middle-aged, I don't hear me anymore. But I tell them it's important. It's that idea of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Like the music of education has been playing long before you got here. And so when you show up, your job is to make it a little bit sweeter before you leave. 
Are you making the music a little bit sweeter in the time that you're here? So in the 1900s, they would then go to church and then look to do enrollment. Who are we going to pick and choose to go to college? We can't afford to pay for everybody. They looked at test scores. They looked at grades. They looked at the desire to want to do something different. And then they would pay that person's way to go to college. The black church, once again, was a place of activism. Because getting young African Americans educated was a form of activism. We get you educated, you get your degrees, and then you move into positions of power. Whether you go on and become a lawyer, or a judge, or a doctor, or a teacher, you move into a position where you then can enact change within the city. A powerful position to be in. We saw the black church again, and I think most importantly, during the civil rights movement. In 1963, they had been planning and strategizing about the march on Washington. And even though the big six plus one, Dorothy Eyehide, would go to the White House and meet with John F. Kennedy, they would be at the White House in the morning, but at the black church in the evening. How are we going to get everyone to come out to march? What is amazing about that time period and the strength of the black church, they did not have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. When they organized, they organized by calling people up and going door to door saying, we're going to march on Washington. Do you want to join us? Do you want to be there? And so what they connected with was black churches all around the country. Can you afford to pay for a bus to send people down to the march on Washington? That's when they really saw the strength of the black church. Because it was in the black church before the march where they talked about ground rules. We want to go down there. We don't want violence. We know you're angry. We know you're frustrated. This is not the place to show it. We have to show the world that we can come together united and stand up for what we believe in and then march away. It was that idea that King had when he said, you have to learn how to fight another day. You have to realize when the struggle is going to end at this place, and then you have to move on somewhere else. King had been actively involved in the black church. You know King's history. I call him one of the big six, like during Black History Month, like six people you find out about, King is one of them. So I don't have to remind you of King's background coming through the black church from his father and his father-in-law. And the fact he was finishing up his degree in theology when they called him down to Birmingham. It was the black church that called him down to Birmingham. They said, we have this movement we want to have. We need someone to be in front of the movement. They wanted a pastor a young pastor in training. They didn't just arbitrarily pick an African-American male. They wanted someone that had grown up in the church, someone who knew the church, knew the language of the church to get people motivated. That is why they chose him, his background. He was very charismatic, but there were a lot of charismatic leaders at that time. But he was uniquely situated to come into the church and lead that movement. King in his writings talks about how he struggled with wanting to do this. His desire was to go back to Atlanta and to have a church. He wanted to take over his father's church and live out that dream that his father had always told him about. So when they got that call to him to say, we want you to come down and lead a movement through the black church, he said he wasn't sure if he was ready. There's a wonderful interview with his wife, Coretta Scott King, who talks about how they prayed and cried all night as he was struggling with this decision. Is this where God wants you to be? Because sometimes when you're called to do something different, you have to know that you're being called to do that. Like you have to be uniquely convinced that this is the work that you have to do. And Coretta said, I would ask him all the time, are you prepared to die for this? 
because when you leave, you might not come back home. She said the bigger question for her was, am I prepared to lose you? She said every time he walked out of the house, she realized she might never see him again. But she trusted two things, she said. She trusted the black church and she trusted her husband. She said, I believe that God is going to protect you. You go down into the church, the church will take care of you. They will give you a place to live. They will feed you. They will make sure you're taken care of. I can't go with you, but you go down to the black church. They will take care of you, and they did. And that's how they organized the Montgomery bus boycott, from church to church. That boycott lasted 281 days. When people ask me whether or not the Black Lives Matter movement is going to last, I have to hold it up against that. It's been about 210 days since Michael Brown was killed. The Montgomery bus boycott went a lot longer than that. Can this movement survive the winter? And I don't mean winter in terms of weather. I know I'm in Boston, so I have to be clear. You know, winter means snow here. I'm talking about the winter of our discontent, the winter of struggle, the winter of being unhappy, the winter of having heartbreak and failure. Can it survive that type of winter? Are young people prepared to fight every single day, even if you don't see victory in front of you? That is something I'm not sure about because young people want a quick victory, and I understand that. You want things to go very fast. I remind them that when they think about the strength of the black church and how long it takes to bring about change to think about American enslavement. That was 242 years of praying, of waiting, of being patient, of learning how to give way and stay small, of trying to keep your family together, of trying to stay alive. 242 years, that's a long time to be in the winter. And then when it ended, I said, think about Jim Crow. 77 years before the back of Jim Crow was broken with Brown v. Board. That's a long time of going in the back door, of getting on the back of the bus, of getting your food out the alley, of drinking from the colored only fountain, of being made to feel that you're nothing. Or as my father would say, he's from South Carolina, that he would walk down the street. If a white person would get on the sidewalk, you would have to get off and wait for them to walk all the way down the sidewalk before you got back on. African-American males were not allowed to laugh in public in Lexington, South Carolina. If you saw something funny, you had to go and stick your head in the barrel. They had barrels set up along the street because white men did not want to see young black men laughing. 77 years of Jim Crow. That's a long time of waiting, of praying, of hoping, of learning how to give way and stay small until the back of Jim Crow was broken. And it didn't end there. I mean, 1954 is in the end of our story. Then you had another 50 years of struggle. The Montgomery bus boycott and the days it took for that. Project C in Birmingham, being arrested over and over and over again. And then getting to this point. 1963, they asked Dr. King, they said, when do you think we'll ever see a black president in this country? And Dr. King said, I'm a man who believes in optimism. I believe in change. He said, you give America 100 years and then we can have this conversation again. Because I don't think this country will be ready for 100 years to have a black president. Did it take 100 years? No. By the time we got to the 50th anniversary of King making that statement, we went to the second administration of Obama. That's how quickly things change. Now, there are some, like my father, who's a pastor, who believes that they prayed Obama in. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. 
When Obama was being elected, I called my dad. He was laying on the ground, prostate on the ground. He's like, I'm laying here. I'm praying. I'm praying him in. It was him. It was my mother and my grandmother. And I'm like, you know what, folks? There might be a better way we can do this. But in their idea, in order to get Obama into the White House, their prayers were important as their vote. Because out of the black church, your prayers are just as important as voting with your feet. That you just can't vote all day long if God doesn't hear you. So I remember calling my Nana, and I voted with her. And she's someone that went into the voting booth and yells out, who are you voting for? I'm like, Nana, it's really private. Like, you know, you're not supposed to be yelling out. But for her, it was an amazing experience. Like, she only made one vote that day. She said, I just looked for Obama's name. That's the only vote I cast. That's it. She said, I didn't vote for anybody else. I didn't know any of those other people. I just voted for him, and I went home and laid down to just pray. But for the people that came through Jim Crow, the people who grew up in places where they had no vote, they had no voice, they didn't have personhood or agency, people who remember what it's like to be spit on and called the N-word every single day of your life, to walk past white schools to get to your black school, for those people, their prayers are important as their vote. Because they voted before and nothing ever happened. So for them and the black church that got people out to vote, the black church organized people going out to vote for Obama. That's where we had rallies, inside the black church. It wasn't just about rallying for the civil rights movement. It was rallying to get Obama in office. The black church, every step of the way, has been a place you go to for solace and for protection. It's a place you run to when you're thinking about making change. It's also interesting, not the place that young people are using today. That is fascinating to us as researchers. Because we look at the history of the black church knowing the power and the strength of the black church. When the Black Lives Matter movement started, it started in the black church. When they were first talking about the response to Michael Brown, they were in the church in Ferguson. That's how we got the information. They were in the church, they sent it up through Twitter, and said, can you go out the same time that we're going out? But then the movement began to spread like wildfire. And young people were no longer meeting in the black church. They're in community centers public spaces, they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're using social media to organize and to stand up and make their vote count. I think that is fascinating because it's changing the way that we struggle. It's changing the way that we understand what struggle means. It's changing the way in which we have to respond. One thing that hasn't changed is the response to struggle and change. Taking a look at those pictures, there might have been some that struck you. A few that struck me was a picture of the dogs out towards the people. Because I know with Project C, Bull Connor made this decision to put the dogs on the children. If you remember, that's the first time that they let young people be on the front lines. That was in Birmingham. That's when King did that wonderful letter from the Birmingham Community Center, right? That's what my kids think. I'm like, it was a jail. He was actually in jail writing this letter. But someone had to go. Someone had to stand up. They met at the black church that morning. The folks that were King's age said, we have to go to work. They were feeling tired with struggle. We've been struggling for so long, and we have not seen anything change. The young people, the college students, stood up and said, we'll go. Which King said, it's like that idea of what the Bible says, whom shall I send? Send me. They said, we'll go. We don't know what's going to happen, but we will go down. And the college students got up and went down, and they marched. And they got arrested immediately. They got out two days later 
Was their spirit broken? No, they went back again. I think it's amazing if you've ever listened to them talk about it. At some point, prison became the place to go, which I think is amazing. Talk to the girls. Oh, yes. You know, I got my bag with my rollers and my curlers and a new shirt and a blouse. I'm going to prison. Who's going to prison? We're all going to prison. I might meet a man in prison because prison was the place to go. You knew you were going to be arrested. Everybody was going to be arrested. You were arrested. You were kept in prison. The girls in one prison, the guys in another, they would sing to each other. But to them, they were in the middle of making change happen. While they were being arrested, their parents and grandparents were in church. And they were praying. Because they said, we have to go to work tomorrow. But what we can do is we can pray. Because our prayers are just as important as the work that our young people are doing. When the college students got tired, and they did, high school students joined them, and that is fascinating to me. 12th graders, 11th graders, 10th graders. Every time Bull Connor would arrest them, the next day more would come out. 400, 900, 1,000, 3,000, 4,000, all young people. The best story I heard was from Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory at that time came down late. And Dick Gregory said wherever he would show up, they would have the police there to arrest him. Like he'd fly into a place, get on the front line, he'd get arrested immediately. He was arrested in Birmingham, along with King, along with Wyatt T. Walker, along with Bayard Rustin. They were all in prison. He said in prison with him was a four-year-old boy. That four-year-old boy was in prison for four days, sitting in the corner, sucking his thumb, and he was crying. He said his daddy was a pastor. His sister was taking him to get bread and said, you know, let's go get with the movement. And he went with her to the movement and he gets arrested. And Bull Connor said, I'm going to make this four-year-old boy. You're going to be my example, child. I'm going to hold you in prison every day for a year of your life. Four days they held him in prison. And on the fourth day before he left, Dick Gregory said he asked that little boy, why are you here? What do you want? The little boy said, I just want my Tita.'" I just want my Tatum. Couldn't even say the word freedom, but he knew what he wanted. And Dick Gregory said at that moment, he realized you don't have to be old to know how to do the right thing. Here's a young boy whose daddy was a pastor. He said he'd heard the right thing all his life, the four years he had. And he was willing to go to prison for his Tatum. Because in the black church, everybody in the church was going to prison. So all the deacons were there, all the ushers were there, all the first ladies were there in prison with him. The strength of the black church. As we begin to understand how we then can mobilize behind this, we have to realize that the struggle for freedom in this country and equality for people of color has always been three-pronged. That first prong has been a legal prong. The first documented case happened in 1849. It was Roberts v. the city of Boston. I thought that was great since, you know, I'm in Boston. But this is the place where you had that first account to want to have segregated schools. Black folks went to court here in Boston asking, can we please segregate the schools? They lost the case, but in 1849 they had the strength, they had black lawyers to be able to go forward with the case. The second part of the struggle is about I was going to say compromise, and I struggle with the word compromise. Compromise is the word that King uses. Bayard Rustin said it's about giving way. It's about staying small. But that second part of the struggle was knowing when to fight and when to walk away. 
If you've seen the movie Selma, which gets it wrong in uh, many places, but one thing that you might have seen is there were three marches that took place. And there was one march with King where they turned back before they crossed over the bridge. And King said that was a deliberate decision, a strategic decision. Why cross over the bridge and we're not going to get what we want? We have to know when to turn around. We have to know when to give way. We have to know when the struggle is not going to happen. That's the second prong. The third prong is about the black church. In times of despair and frustration and rage and anger, it is the black church that stands tall as a beacon of hope. I spent a lot of time thinking about Boston in preparation for today. Because if I'm coming to a city, I want to make sure it's an activist type of city so I can talk about activism in a good place. Well, in Boston, it was here on December 31st, 1862 at the Tremont Church where they read the Emancipation Proclamation when it came across. Frederick Douglass was there. You had William Wells Brown there. I mean, here's a church where they read for the first time the Emancipation Proclamation in Boston, right here. But this idea that they were in church waiting to hear if Lincoln was going to sign this document. Frederick Douglass told people around the country, everywhere he traveled, he said, on that night, we need every black person that can and every white person who cares to get to a church. We need you to be in church, and we have to pray this document through. He said, I want you in church starting at 11 p.m. That's the idea of Watchtower Night. That's what we do. You start praying at 11 p.m., and they prayed all the way through until that news came across the wire. They did not stop praying, according to Frederick Douglass, until they got the news. And when they received the news that Lincoln had signed that document, he said it's like a, a, a voice that was released, that black folks were singing, and you can hear them singing as far as Virginia and as far up as Boston. And they were all within the black church. Because that's where Douglas said, if we want change to happen, we need to be in church to make sure that it happens. With some of the lessons that we want to learn about this, I think about how do we take this information from Black Lives Matter and the Civil Rights Movement and the black church, what are the big lessons that we need to learn? There are four things I think that are important. The first thing is this idea around faith. Dr. King said you need to be able to make the second step even if you don't see the whole stairway. That faith is that notion that if you're doing what you're supposed to do, if you're doing what we call the right thing, then there'll be something to catch you on the other side. The way I see it is that faith is when you come to the end of all that you know and you prepare to step out in the darkness. Faith is knowing there'll be something strong for you to stand on or you'll be taught how to fly. Faith is what they get to in the black church. Faith is when you ask African Americans, how have we come this far? They will say it's faith that carried us this far. This faith in the system. The civil rights movement was not about changing the law. It was just asking people to actively apply the law. The law was already in place. It was, we're going to meet violence and hatred with love and patience. That's not the same thing that's happening today, though. What's interesting is that when I talk to young people around the country, they're not prepared to meet violence and hatred with love and patience anymore. Their argument is that we tried that and it didn't work. We tried love. We tried patience. We tried waiting. We tried being arrested. We tried being kicked. We tried being beaten. And it didn't work because it's 2015 and we're back to the same place. 
What I try to push them towards is this idea of faith. That you have to believe that change is going to come. And they challenged me on that. Well, Dr. Whitehead, what does change look like? I don't know. I have no idea what change looks like. I just know that if violence meets violence, change is never going to happen. If hatred meets hatred, change is never going to happen. Because in the end, if everyone's gone, if everyone is sacrificed, if everyone is killed, then change will never happen. So that's one of the things that we do with our teach-ins. We're trying to help people in the Black Lives Matter movement begin to just move away from meeting violence with violence and think about other strategies. What else can we do to bring about change? So faith is that first one. That second idea I had is around opportunity. Dr. King said you have to recognize when a gear is shifting and be ready to move. The way they explain this gear shifting, they talk about Rosa Parks. At her funeral, they stood up and said that when Rosa Parks chose not to get up, that a gear shifted somewhere in the universe and life would never be the same again. I find that to be amazing, that you make a decision and a gear shifts. Now, that's the story that's told for the public. Behind that story is the rest of it. The fact that Claudette Colvin, a 16-year-old girl, was the first one who chose not to get up. She was going to be the Rosa Parks. If you don't know who Claudette Colvin is, Google her. She has a wonderful speech online called When History Passes You By. Because she was going to be the Rosa Parks. They said, we have found her. They thought she was the perfect candidate. She was strong. She was bold. She was willing to go to prison. The problem they found out is that she was an unmarried teenage girl. They said, we cannot get behind an unmarried girl. And that night, at the church, they asked Rosa Parks. They said, would you take her place? Would you go on the bus on this day, since we already have the movement planned, get arrested, stand up, and be the face of the movement? Claudette Colvin says, at that moment, she sat there and said, history is passing me by. Opportunity. Do you know when it's your opportunity to make a difference? Do you know when it's your moment to stand up? We all have moments when we have to stand up. We all have to know when it's time to do the right thing. Are you prepared to march in the right direction even if you're marching by yourself? That's very difficult to do. When you look at the work of Dick Gregory, he said that many times I would go down into the black church and I was trying to stir people up in places like Memphis, Tennessee, places like Little Rock, Arkansas. People did not want to come with me. They were afraid. They'd rather let this opportunity pass them by. Dick Gregory said he thought about Esther, the book of Esther, and how you're being raised up for such a time as this. And if you're not the person to stand up, someone else is going to be called on to stand up. Are you prepared for that opportunity? When the young people with Black Lives Matter and I was one of the folks they contacted. I said, are you willing to go to prison? Yes, we are. I said, are you willing to die? Yes, we are. Then you need to get off the phone with me and go and watch, if that's what you want to do. If you believe in this, and I wish I could join you, I wish I could come down to Ferguson and join you, because if this is about making history, about making change, you will remember this, the days when you pull the reins of democracy and you shape this country to remind itself of how it could be when everybody has a voice. That's making history. That's taking advantage of opportunity. Do you know when opportunity is calling you? So that first lesson is around faith. That second one is around opportunity. The third one is around talent. 
Talent is a difficult thing because talent is something that other people have to recognize in you. I think of it this way. When I was in high school, I wanted to quit school and join a band because I believe I could sing. I mean, if you heard me in the shower, I mean, I sounded like Whitney Houston. And I was like, you know, I told my father, you know, this voice cannot be kept from the world. Like, I've got to share this. My father said, I agree with you. I said, I need to quit school and join a band. Absolutely. Let me buy you a tape recorder. Tape yourself, and then we all can share in the glory of your voice. I taped myself. I played that tape. I thought it was the batteries at first and like the plug, but I recognized at that moment that talent is not something you recognize in you. It's something that others recognize in you. Are you a leader? How do you know that? Are other people following you? Because leaders are very powerful people. You can lead people in the wrong direction. Think of Hitler. You can lead him in the wrong direction. But if you have talent, you can find a place to use your talent to bend this world towards being different. That's what talent is, recognizing that. Dr. King did not know he was ready for that moment. They called him down there, and he rose to that occasion. Rosa Parks said she didn't feel she was ready to be the face of the movement. They called her, and she rose to the occasion. Do you know what you can do better than anyone else? I believe and I come out of the black church, that everybody has something that they're here to do. Everybody. And if you're still here, you haven't done it yet. Whatever that talent is that's inside of you, your talent is not given to you. It's instilled in you to be used to make the world better. Do you know what you can do? Are you in line to take your talent and change this world? When I look at the young people in those pictures, those pictures were frightening to me. Those were young men, and many of them, who were not college students. They were brothers on the street corner who just recognized when something was wrong. And they were willing to stand up and be tear gassed because they recognized that something was wrong. That's what talent is. So that first idea is figuring out about faith. What do you believe in? What's bigger than you? What are you willing to stand up for? The second is opportunity, recognizing when opportunity calls and being willing to take that opportunity. Third is talent, knowing what you can do and being willing to use what you have to make the world better. The fourth lesson I think from this is around grit, G-R-I-T. Grit is very, very difficult to quantify. You can't buy grit, like you can't even grow grit in yourself. This is how I understand it. When my 12-year-old was four, he was a little sick one day. He was playing in his room. He was up there by himself, and he sneezed, and he yells out, God bless you, Amir. His name is Amir. He comes downstairs, and I say to him, you know, I heard you upstairs, Amir. Why did you say God bless you, Amir? He said, Mommy, when you're by yourself, sometimes you got to bless yourself. I'm like, you know what? That's grit. Sometimes you got to bless yourself. Sometimes when people don't recognize what you have, you got to bless yourself. That is that idea of being willing to go the long haul. Knowing it's going to take 300 days, knowing it's going to take 20 years, knowing it might take 200 years, but if change is something that you believe in, then you go as long as you can go. And when you can't go anymore, you pass it on to the next generation, and they have to go for you. For those of us who are the sandwich folks, which is what I am, this movement has passed us by. What we can do instead is we can bend our privilege to help young people like you make those changes. So because I couldn't go and die in, it was really too cold for me. 
and I couldn't march because I didn't have my boots and I didn't have a hat on, what I could do is I could take blankets out, which is what I did. I took out coffee cards. I took out donuts the first thing in the morning. That's how I bent my privilege. That's how I could help. I did op-eds talking about black lives. I organized teachers to talk about the history. I used what I had at that moment to make a difference. That's the challenge that we have. Finding ways to use what we have, what we have been given to make a difference. That is the strength of the black church. So as we begin to go forward and we figure out what the next steps are for this movement and whether or not this movement can make its way through the winter, we're starting to understand what that means for our challenge. We have to believe that we can make a difference regardless of age or gender or history. We have to believe that change can happen at this moment, even if it's not a huge change, even small change makes a difference. It's not always about leaps and bounds. Sometimes it's just about inches. Moving this country towards what we're supposed to be. When you read our documents, and I hope you go back and you read the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, I read those things. And I say, that's the nation I want to live in. Like, I want to live in a place where people are all equal and their voice. I want to live there. Wherever this country is, that's where I want to live. I want to live in a place where people are not judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. That's where I want to live. But King said, in order to live there, we have to start here to get us there. To get to that wonderful place where there's equality and freedom and social justice, we've got to do the hard work at this moment. My father once told me that the revolution was trapped in the clouds. When I was asking him, you know, why hasn't revolution come? He said, you know, the revolution is trapped in the clouds, and we need to go to church, and we need to pray for rain. When my youngest son heard this, my 14-year-old, he said, Mommy, but don't you have to prepare for the rain? That while Daddy's praying for the rain and Granddaddy's praying for the rain, why can't we be out planting food? Like, can't we plant so when the rain comes and the plants are there, the two things come together and we can grow? This idea of recognizing that change takes place every step of the way. I believe, like my son, that we should do it all. That we pray and we plant. We march and we sing. We die in and we pray in. And we find ways to bend our privilege to be the change we need to see in the world. Thank you so much. So I wanted to open it up if I have time for Q&A. If you have questions, I'd love to, uh, to hear from you. I struggle with that system and that idea that we don't belong here, because that's what it's about. If the system wasn't made for people of color, what you're saying is that people of color are not a part of America. The American system was made for Americans. It's people that stand in the way of the system being applied equally. Not the system. The system's not broken. And I know that's a radical statement to make. People believe it's broken. The system's not broken. The system's working exactly as the way people are applying it. The idea is that when the civil rights movement happened, what they were looking for was an equal application of the law. The laws had been made. It's about policies and practices and procedures. It's not the system that needs to change. I believe it's the hearts and minds of individuals that need to change because that is what's stopping us. When Michael Brown or Tamir Rice, they're not being shot by the system. They're being shot by individuals, individuals who are recognizing that the change is taking place. So I don't think the system is broken. I don't think the system is only made for white people. I don't believe that. Because if the system was only made for white people, then I wouldn't be here with my PhD. We wouldn't be equal if the system wasn't made for us. 
We wouldn't have equal application of the law if the system wasn't made for us. We wouldn't have a Thurgood Marshall, right? Or Dorothy I. Hyde. We wouldn't have a Clarence Thomas, whether or not you can agree with his policies or not. We wouldn't have him if the system was not made for people of color. It is. It's finding ways to use the system to get the change you need to see. That's what we have to do, find a ways to use the system to make it work for us. Because I recognize that the people who don't believe what I believe, which is inequality and justice for all people, women, men, children of all different races, religions, and creeds, they're not going to read my book. They're not going to read a journal article, but they will read an op-ed on Sunday morning with their coffee, which is why I do op-eds. And every time I do an op-ed, there's a guy in Dundalk, and Dundalk is outside of Baltimore. To me, it's the kind of place where they go outside and cut the Wi-Fi on. And there's one guy who like, waits for the paper, and he reads my op-eds. He absolutely hates me, and he writes me just the worst type of letters. I mean, he is a clear racist. But he says things like, I've read everything you've written. And every time you write something, I read it. And I listen to you speak on the radio. I don't like you. But he's spending a bulk of his time listening to me and reading my work. So I tell him that's not really a good job to have. Like your whole job is focused on me. But I also recognize as I tell him, I know you hate me, Mr. Such and Such, and you think I'm absolutely wrong, but I'm challenging you. It's making you write letters. It's making you find my work. Ultimately, that work is going to get in. Now, will the change happen with him? Maybe not. Maybe it's the people around him. I mean, I sometimes wonder if it's like this children of Israel theory, that those of us who are racist and old and haven't figured out need to wander in the desert till we drop dead so everyone else can be free. I don't know. I do know that this generation, your generation, you're a lot more enlightened around race than my father's generation. In my father's generation, they were right in the midst of Jim Crow. Like they know what it means to, to go to prison and to fight for change. I know about it secondhand because he told me about it. My children are very far removed from that. And when I talk about race, they say, I can't believe you're still talking about race, mommy. Because they have interracial friends and interracial environments. Like, it's not the same issue. I wonder if in the next 10 years, this idea of race isn't even going to be an issue anymore. I wonder what's going to happen when your generation, when you graduate, and when you can really enact policy and change. If you look at the things we struggled with and you wonder why we struggled with it, that if you can move us along, that's what I think is going to happen. I mean, by 2040, whites are going to be in the minority. The new majority is going to be brown people. So when that happens, the world's going to change in a lot of different ways. My hope is that the young people sitting here today and young people all around this country who are saying we're not going to have the system treat us this way, we're going to stand up and make our voices count, they're going to recognize race is really not the big issue. I'm waiting for you to tackle the class issue. Like That, to me, is the bigger issue. So that's what I do. I continue to teach. I continue to write. And every time I have an opportunity, I tell people what I believe the truth is, based upon the research, based upon our history. And I challenge you to do the same. During the civil rights movement, it was King from the church and Walker from the church, Rosa Parks from the church. Bayard Rustin wasn't from the church, which is one of the reasons why he's been erased so much in history. But during Black Lives Matter, those were not deacons from the church. I mean, a bulk of the guys in those pictures, as I said, were brothers from the hood who just recognize that this is wrong and we have got to do something. I don't think leadership anymore is starting in the black church. I think leadership is starting on the street corner. It's starting on Twitter. It's starting on Facebook. Leadership is started by anybody who believes that they can make a difference, they can get people organized and rally, and that's what they're doing. But the other part of that, I think, 
particularly with someone like you who's educated and in pursuit of education and literacy, they also need you, right? Because the brothers on the street, they're marching and they're being arrested and they're doing rallies. They need someone to write policy though. They need someone to go to Annapolis, for example, in Maryland to talk to the politicians about changing the laws. That's what needs to happen. That's that two-pronged struggle. It's not just enough to march. Someone's got to write policy. Someone's got to go to Annapolis and speak to the politicians. Someone's got to look at the law and say, this is the wrong application of this law. So they need both sides of it. I mean, what the brothers in the streets need are people like you to come and join them. But the college students I know, we, at the same time, we want you to finish school, right? So if I say, you know what, brother, you should go to Ferguson, I'm like, join the movement, and then you don't graduate, well, that doesn't help us either. So what are the ways that we can do both? Because the black church is not the place we're organizing anymore. It's at the community centers now. It's on college campuses now. It's at Starbucks now. It's wherever people can get together and they have access to Wi-Fi, that's where they're doing the organizing. But they need other voices, and it's about leadership. We have gone past the day of having one leader. I don't think, and I could be wrong, I don't think we're ever gonna have another Dr. King. Not because he was so dynamic and charismatic, which he was, but that day of having one leader is gone. Because we realize when one leader dies, then a part of the movement dies with that one leader. Black Lives Matter, you can't name one leader. They're leaders based upon the cities because they're all dealing with change within their own communities. The issues we're struggling with in Baltimore are different than the issues here in Boston. So it's not one agenda, like it's not just the back of Jim Crow. It's about the ways in which we apply the law in Baltimore differently than say Virginia. And that's what I think is fascinating. I think a game changer too is Martise Johnson. I'm not sure if people are familiar with him. Martise Johnson, the African-American uh, third year student at UVA who was arrested on St. Patrick's Day you know, knock him to the ground, the whole thing. I think he's gonna be a game changer. When you talk about leadership, I mean, he's double majoring in Latin and media, on the Honors Council, you know, 3.0 and above student, can speak intelligently about the problems with the system. That's the kind of people they need. Martise Johnson, now it's happened to him, he's even more committed to the movement. Prior to that, they said Martise did not leave class for Black Lives Matter. I mean, he believed in it, but he was getting his work done. I think when it happens to you, then we recognize we need Martise Johnson's as well as we need the brothers who had the mask on their face because of the tear gas used in Ferguson. I also know that places like Ferguson, those are powder kegs. I mean, Ferguson's been waiting to explode for a long time. If you look at the policies in Ferguson, the ways in which the police treat the community, these are old things that have been happening. I think when you add in Obama's election twice, but you add in the power of social media, which I think really changed things. Because before, someone can get shot, and you would hear about it on the news, and it would concern you. Even if we had Facebook, but with Twitter, it becomes a part of our national consciousness, right? So that we're all saying to Eric Garner, I can't breathe, because we're all watching the video. So something that happened to this one guy in New York becomes a struggle in Tibet, right? The one guy in Ferguson becomes an issue in Sudan because of social media. So I think it's a combination of both. People are beginning to see that all of these struggles are connected. These are powder kegs. I mean, Selma, when they went down there, I don't know if you saw the president's speech for the 50th anniversary of Selma, amazing speech on race. When he talked about, you know, I am Fannie Lou Hamer and so are you. Oh, it was amazing. Selma's a powder keg. I mean, that's going to explode. Voter registration is down lower than it was 50 years ago. The economic poverty levels are lower than they were 50 years ago. These are powder kegs. Baltimore is a powder keg. 
Wait, I can't wait till you get there. Baltimore's a powder keg waiting to explode because the system hasn't changed in these places. He's going to, yes, we're going to pull him. Yeah. I'm hoping you can help it and join me on the front lines here. I'll have you marching in no time at all. Bring your boots. But the idea that these are powder kegs. So if you have these powder keg situations, it will take a Michael Brown. It will take a Trayvon Martin. It will take a Jordan Davis where you look and go, enough is enough. It may not have been enough two years ago because it was happening two years ago. Why is it enough now? Because now we can spread it through Twitter and everybody's saying enough is enough. I mean, everybody went to Ferguson. And if you were not in Ferguson, then you have Ferguson in New York, right? You have Ferguson in Baltimore. Because we're all saying there's something wrong with the ways in which black men are being treated. How can we change this? Not change the law, because the system is working. How do we change the way in which these police officers, black, white, or Hispanic, are treating black men? So I agree with you. I just think there are other issues on top of it that we're beginning to see are very important. One, during the time of Jim Crow, the black church was really the only place you could go. I mean, you didn't have open public spaces, places where you were safe. Like, you didn't have Starbucks. I always use Starbucks and pick on Starbucks. But you didn't have Starbucks. So if you wanted to go and spend the evening in the safety and comfort of your friends, if you were not at home, you were in the black church. It was a place where you went to. It was that meeting ground. I grew up in the black church. As I said, I'm a pastor's daughter. We were at church from the time the church opened on Sunday all the way through to the close that night. Our friends would meet us at church. We'd have dinner at church. It was an organizing ground. My son spent a quarter of the time in church that I do because now they have play dates, right? And now, you know, we're going to get Cold Stone Creamery and now we're going to Starbucks. Like there are a thousand places we can go and be safe and have community where the black church is no longer that only place to go. Also, people, young people, from what I've been reading, are questioning this idea of faith. How much will prayer help you? Why is it important? Why do you only believe this? Killing in the name of religion. Like, it's a not, another whole level of struggle around religion in this country. So that's why I think the black church, because it's not the only place you can go. You don't even have to leave the home to have community anymore, right? I mean, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Probably, if you're like every other young, people, young person in the world, you probably check your phone. And if you don't have your phone with you, you probably are not very comfortable, right? I mean, you know, because that's ambient intimacy, right? So, I mean, you might be me. I mean, I will drive home, and I can track it. I'm like, I'll go four blocks. I'll go eight blocks. I mean, there's a day I went like 10 blocks out, and I went all the way back home because I didn't have my phone. And if the world's going to blow up, I want to know because my phone will tell me and keep me safe, right? So you don't even have to leave home for that. We can just organize on Twitter. We don't have to go to the black church. I can just say, meet me here. You spread the word and we'll meet there. I can go on my Facebook page and say, meet me here, and people will come and meet you there. So the black church in so many ways has been moved from being that center because now we have so many other places we can meet, even if we don't want to leave home. That's what I think is happening. One thing can't happen without the other. Like, we can't stop the way police are treating unarmed black individuals until we deal with black crime. I think they're not the same issue. They're two separate issues. Around the issue of how police officers are treating people in the community, they are held to a higher standard because their job, it says they're for them, they're there to defend and to protect. So some of the things that we want to happen, we want police officers who work in poverty-stricken neighborhoods to go into the communities and get to know the environment.
We want them to have training around race, around stereotypes and values, to begin to see people as individuals and not just as animals. We want to have laws in place so that when police officers shoot someone, they no longer have two weeks to wait before they have to give their statement. They shoot someone, your statement has to be given immediately. We want a review board in place made of not just police officers, but of community members. We want the community members to work in concert with the police officers because they are held to a higher standard. Now, when it comes to black on black crime, which is separate from the ways in which the police treat us, that is another issue that we're dealing with. It's a huge issue. Is it around poverty? Is it around dangers, around threats? Is it around having people in these kind of sep separated neighborhoods? We don't know. We do know that black on black crime is a serious issue. And it's one that, as a black mother, I struggle with. Because my son has two battles going on, right? One is the battle when police officers stop you. The second is the battle when a fight breaks out on the playground. In both of those situations, it's danger. Because black males between the ages of 14 and 21 have a one in three chance of being killed either by black on black violence or police brutality. So these are two separate issues that are equally as important. What we have decided, and I say we, I'm not speaking for every single person who's working on this in the world, but the organizations I work with is we're working on them together. There's one committee working on black on black crime trying to figure that out. We have a committee working on the literacy rates, and we have a committee working with the police officers to figure out how we can do things differently in the community. Ferguson happened with Mike Brown, and that's all we were talking about, and it exploded. It died down. Then Eric Garner happened. Then it flared back up. It died down, then Tamir Rice happened. It died down, then John. I mean, unfortunately, there's been this, you know, it died down, now Martise Johnson. But media changes very quickly. I teach in communication, and I was talking to my students about how on the anniversary of the assassination of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman, people weren't talking about that. They were talking about what color is the dress. That was a dominating conversation. We're sitting in my class, I'm trying to talk about Trayvon, and I have you know, basketball players going, Dr. Whitehead, what color is the dress? I'm like, are you serious? Like, are you really want me to take time from instruction and talk about the dress? Why? Because that was social media. And on social media, that's what we're talking about. Who's breaking social media? Who's sending out new pictures? Who's dating whom? Like, it's like People Magazine, except it's in your pocket, right? So that's what I mean about being able to survive the winter. Even the winter of people not being interested. Like that is hugely important because life moves so fast. I tell people you have to figure out the issue that you're going to work on and focus on that because you can't do everything. That's why I separated black on black crime and police brutality because you can't work on everything. Like one person, two people, three people can't do everything. But we can all work on the issues that are important to us and work at the same time. So how do we keep it in front of the media? That only seems to happen when an issue happens. But while we're waiting for another issue, because issues are always happening, we have a committee of people going down to Annapolis, using Baltimore as an example, going before the politicians and testifying, talking about changing the laws. That's why I said we need people like you, because the media's not going to be interested unless it's a Martise Johnson, unless it's a Michael Brown. They're not going to be interested. We need people to do the hard work, and the hard work, you get no rewards for that. Sometimes that's the work you do in the darkness, to make sure that the issue is being resolved. So how do you find balance, right? You know, life and love and balancing all that. The people who were involved in the civil rights movement, a number of them left college. And many of them regret that decision, that they left college and did not go back and finish. Because over the long haul, we need more African-Americans to get their college degrees and to continue on, particularly African-American males. 
So I tell young people, you have to figure out when do you stand up and when do you go to class? Because the, the movement is going to continue with or without your degree. But having a degree means you can move to the front of the movement or you can continue to be in the picture standing on the street corner. Because when the movement ends, if you can't get a job, then you really can't continue to be a part of this system. So it's finding ways to strike the balance, knowing when you can do something. I tell young people in college, you can write an op-ed. To me, that's the easiest thing. 750 words. Put the issue out in the local newspaper. You can run a teaching on campus. You can mentor at a local high school. You can find ways to make change on a small scale. Not everybody should be in Ferguson, because Ferguson is not the only place in this country that has a problem. There are black people suffering everywhere. There are Hispanic people suffering everywhere. There are economically impoverished whites suffering everywhere. So how do you use the place where you are to continue to move in your educational process to make a change? You gotta pick and choose. Because going through all of this and then having no degree at the end, I think is a waste of time. And I say that as someone who grew up where education was very important. I mean, I'm a third generation college student. That meant a lot to my family. When I went to college, it was like a big deal for me to tell people I'm a third generation college student. Like my daddy has his PhD and my grandmother had her PhD. Like that's huge. So I knew I could not leave and join a movement and not finish school. So I had to find ways to balance and that's what you have to do. Pick and choose your battles and pick them very wisely, right? Because whatever decision you make today, when you choose one thing, it means you're saying no to something else. So you choose to march, you're saying no to getting ready for your test. In the long run, that test is what will get you out of school so then you can circle back around to the movement because it's not going to change tomorrow. Give it some time until you graduate. They still need you. Thank you, Kay. <laughs>